It is 11.30 here at KRVN. Tyler Cavalli along with you. Time for midday. We have a busy one at that as well. Jason Jorgensen in for sports. Bob Brogan in for business report coming up here in just a few moments. But of course, as we always do, let's get things kicked off with our own Susan Littlefield to give us a preview of what's to come. Well, thanks, Tyler. Here's what's happening on a Tuesday on the midday from the farm team. Clay's going to kick everything off at 1219 as he speaks with Arlen Suderman of Stonex on what the U.S.-China trade is all meaning. Then Alex steps in at 1245 to speak with Blake Kirkhoff. He is an FFA star finalist with the National FFA. And then Chabella will wrap everything up coming up at 117 as UW talks ancient grains. That's a midday from the farm team. All right, thank you very much, Susan. Jason's now in for sports. And uh, what do we have going on today? I know we have a lot of playoffs going on, obviously, with uh, NBA, NHL. Uh, but uh, what do you have on tap? Uh, incoming into the uh, Big Ten Conference Office and Commissioner uh, Kevin Warren is uh, this thing just continues to be a PR nightmare for them. I think what a lot of folks are upset about is a lack of transparency. Uh, mm-hmm. It's Coming pretty certain now. They never really even voted on the thing. That's what just some kind like. of talked about it, and the commissioner said, "Okay, we don't want to play right." And uh, it's looking worse and worse for him now. There's a group of Ohio State parents that say they're actually going to show up as a group to the conference office as they continue to try to put the squeeze on the commissioner and also on the league. We picketing outside the office. By the way, did, do we know if he ever got the letter or not? That was supposed to be delivered yesterday, right? Yeah, I haven't heard if he actually got that hand. Or if it uh, was thrown right into the trash. I don't know. It's not going to change anything. But Correct. you can see what their strategy is to try to ride this thing out. This has been a PR nightmare. They probably got to hope, hey, it will pass. Something else will break. And you know, our, and who knows in a month, the Big Ten, they may look like geniuses right. for doing it. We just do not know. Well, it's interesting because Nick Saban said that he's worried about his top players opting out. And he said his team may look like a JV team yeah, because right. of all the sure. team. Yeah. For him. <laughs> for him is what he's uh, it, it will, you know, because a lot of his guys are NFL dudes. So it'll be interesting. Nick Saban's third team would still be favored to win the Big Ten West. We'll just put it. We'll put it there. But we'll keep you up to date uh, on uh, on all that fallout. Uh, just are being a little cautious here. The Cincinnati Reds have had a couple of cases of COVID, so their game tonight in Kansas City has been postponed. They'll try to make that up tomorrow as part of a doubleheader. By the way, uh, before we move on to Bob here in just a moment. Space Jam 2 is coming out here fairly soon. They have uh, released a little bit of a somewhat sneak peek, if you will, of the new jersey. Did you see it? Not interested. No, I'm not saying that you have to watch the movie, but did you see the new jersey? Mm-mm. Okay, all right. Well, you need to check it out. It's on my Twitter page. I tweeted out, okay. and LeBron James is wearing it. I know your feelings on him. That's fine. <laughs> but all I'm going to say is uh, the original is a classic. It's a masterpiece compared to this loud jersey. It's not as great. So I'm just letting you know. Check it out and let me know what you think at uh, 1225. How about that? I'll do that. All right, sounds good. Bob, I know you're a Space Jam fan, I'm sure. Uh, I've got a little altar at home to uh, LeBron. Just want to, you know, I visit it at least once a day. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. I know you did. So what, what do you have for us in business? The S&P is near record levels, but stocks have been drifting this morning. Uh, construction of new homes surged 22.6% last month. Uh, home builders are continuing to bounce back from the pandemic. Those are some of the stories we're keeping an eye on. Thank you very much. Clay, you're next. 
As harvest gets underway, we want to hear from you. Starting the week of September 7th through the end of October, we're going to have conversations from the cab. We encourage you to be a part of this conversation by texting us at 402-710-9706 and say, Hey Susan, let's have that conversation about how my harvest is going. That number again, 402-710-9706. It's conversations from the cab on 880-KRVX. Tampa Regional Ag Weather here on KRVN. It's now 1144. Scott Foster is now stepping in. And, uh, Scott, we saw some nice precipitation in south-central, really central Nebraska earlier this morning. We're still seeing some moving into, again, south-central Nebraska. We even had some wicked lightning, I noticed, when I was coming in this morning. Yeah, they really did. It was. It started very early this morning, and, and uh, you know... Uh, some of us have to come to work really early in the morning, and so we saw that <laughs> just this week. But some that, of us means you, yeah. Today it was. But listen, that 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 group of that cluster of storms or whatever, just some showers, mm-hmm. that move very much. They kind of just hanging out there, aren't they? Well, you know, this morning when I came in at about ten a.m. to stepped on the air, it was up in the Ainsworth O'Neill area about ten o'clock. It was mm-hmm. much stronger at one point. Yes, was it was. some thunderstorms in there, so a lot of red and yellow on the radar. It's weekend, and it's not quite as big, but now it's moving straight south, basically, to Kearney Grand Island. Well, and that's kind of the thing with what we're looking at right now. The difference between today and what we saw yesterday, it looked like maybe this was going to be a carbon copy sort of day, but there were some real differences. And yesterday, we had some real area, some areas that just looked like it was definitely going to be dry and it was, and we're in a type of a summer weather pattern featuring upper-level winds out of the north-northwest in which at least isolated showers and thunderstorms can sometimes develop um, somewhat unpredictably. Thanks to the presence of some fairly subtle disturbances, the weather forecast computer models do not always pick them up very well, and that's the situation that we're looking at oh, today and tonight as while most of uh, south-central Nebraska and north-central Kansas will surely remain dry most of the time, small portions of the area will, in fact, see some passing showers and a few thunderstorms. So don't be caught off guard if that happens as some brief rain moves in. Fortunately, the vast majority of any thunderstorm activity that occurs in our coverage area today and tonight should remain on the weaker side capable of producing maybe just some brief rainfall and maybe a little bit of hail. Now, I'm going to hedge my bet again. That being said, a strong storm or two is not completely out of the question. Now, the similarities are that uh, temperatures will be about the same, looking at 80s and 90s, winds are blowing at about 10 to 15, generally out of the south today. Let's take a look at our ag forecast. Calls for only light precipitation over the Midwest during the next week. This is unfavorable for filling row crops. Seasonal to below normal temperatures will ease dryness impacts somewhat. Rain chances increase in the 10 to 14 day time frame. However, amounts are variable. Very little rain is in store for the southern plains over the next week. The drier trend along with very warm weather will be unfavorable for summer crops that need light late season moisture. There are also questions about the soil moisture supply ahead of winter wheat planting. In the northern plains, areas have a mainly dry pattern in the forecast through the balance of the week. Temperatures will generally be above normal 
This warm and dry pattern is favorable for spring wheat and small grain harvest. However, dryness is leading to a loss of pasture and late summer livestock grazing and grasshopper damage is increasing in western sectors as well. In the delta in southeast, the delta will have very little rain during the coming week. Southeast areas have a better chance for precipitation. As we look overseas quickly, well, not quite overseas yet. Canadian prairies, it's just north. Rainfall will be variable in the next seven days. Northern areas will have moderate amounts in store. Southern sectors have mainly light amounts, and there's no significant easing of dryness. Southern Brazil, still just south, has a high prospect of for low temperatures the next five days, and this includes a prospect of a freeze. Same thing in Argentina, a chance for a freeze there. Across Europe, two, two storm systems will continue to uh, produce showers over the course of the week, continuing in most favorable conditions for filling crops. Finally, western Ukraine in the Black Sea region. Western Ukraine has light to moderate rain forecasts through the end of the week. Other sectors will be dry or with only light rainfall. But for here, a chance to pop up once in a while. We may see them pretty unpredictable. But um, for the most part, we're looking at 80s and 90s across the region in mainly dry situations. And it was interesting. I've been talking about this all morning. It's two different worlds from North Platte West and North Platte East. North Platte is at 81 degrees, and you're seeing 93 in Kimball. And then uh, Kearney's at 68 in the rest of eastern Nebraska's low 70s. Major difference that we from yesterday, remember, because we were pretty consistent across the state true, of Nebraska. We had the same temperature in Omaha and in Kimball. Now Kimball's at 93, Omaha's at 75. So that's... That's a little bit more par for the course for this huge state that we live in. All right, very good. Thank you, Scott. Uh, for more weather, where do you find that at? You can go ahead and take a look at krvn.com. China's looking at food security and self-sufficiency. That could mean lower demand for U.S. farmers and U.S. commodity exports. We ask a top expert in the field of ag economics his thoughts on the subject here on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Clay Patton. Arlen Suderman, chief economist for Stonex, now joins us. And Arlen, right now we see China aggressively buying U.S. ag products. They recently went on a seven-day buying streak of buying U.S. soybeans, and now they were a part of the latest round of USDA flash sales buying corn. Yet many of their state publications and broadcasts are pushing a food self-sufficiency narrative. What do you make of all this? China's facing probably its biggest challenges of the communist regime in the last 70 years. When you look at Hong Kong, the floods, trade war with the United States, coronavirus, and the list goes on and on. But yet out of that, a few weeks ago, President Xi Jinping took the time to go north into the North China Plain to uh, tour a corn farm. The next week, his vice premier did the same thing. The next week, we saw a state-run media article on the need for self-sufficiency in, in the grains, stating that they're self-sufficient in in wheat and rice now, and they basically are, that they're 95% self-sufficient in corn. I would say that's closer to 90% self-sufficient, and that they need to move in that direction. Then this week, they have a front-page story in state-run media about eliminating food waste and how that is a priority of the Chinese Communist Party in their, as they move towards self-sufficiency. And they specifically mention the need to do so because of the disruptions from the coronavirus. Arlen, here in the U.S., we're seeing a lot of mixed opinions right now on the COVID-19 pandemic, with some states regressing their reopening, some states push even to higher levels of reopening. What's China feeling right now on the pandemic? They continue 
to be panicked over this that they believe, since they handled, in their view, coronavirus better than any other country, and that when they had their outbreak, it disrupted their supply chains and shut down their ports, they still believe it's just a matter of time before the same thing happens to the ports in in Brazil, the ports in the United States, the ports in Canada, the ports in Europe, eliminating their ability to import their food commodities. So they are working hard to get toward that self-sufficiency. So how does that mend then with their shortage of corn that they have right now? They've obviously bought quite a bit of corn. They're aggressively buying soybeans right now. But we believe it's also part of what they're doing to front load their demand to try to get it in because they simply believe the ports are going to close and they have a limited window in order to get stuff imported that they need. Meanwhile, they're trying to adjust their systems internally so they can produce what they need. Stonex has a team in China. They continue to monitor the situation. So what is Stonex view? Can China actually meet their self-sufficient needs in terms of crop production? That's going to be hard on soybeans. On corn, it's going to be hard as well, but they're a lot closer to the objective there. They'd have to close the gap of about 10% of what they consume. They have a lot of room to do that if they can improve their production efficiencies. The problem is with all their millions of little one-acre farms, it's hard to improve the efficiency unless they move those farmers off of the farms, put them together into cooperative farms, but then they have to deal with supporting their rural poor, creating jobs for them, and their economy is very weak right now, making it difficult to do so. So there's going to be some challenges in that. That again, Arlen Suderman, chief economist for Stonex, walking us through why China wants to be self-sufficient, but some of the hurdles they face in trying to do so, and why it still looks to be positive for U.S. farmers and U.S. ag commodity demand. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. It is time for Midday Sports, and Jason Jorgensen is in for that, and well, Jace, we continue to talk about Big Ten and not in a good light. <laughs> no. The plot continues to thicken for the league and its decision to shut down the fall sports season, along with taking heat on social media, receiving signed letters from parents from several schools. Now comes word that Randy Wade, whose son Sean plays for Ohio State, is organizing a peaceful show of force outside the league's offices on Friday morning. Wade posted his plans on Twitter today. Now, his son, Sean, doesn't need to play this fall. He will already be a potential first-round draft pick in the 2021 draft. But Wade says uh, he wants to make it known his feelings about how the decision to cancel the season went over when the other Power Five leagues are still looking to play. A peaceful show of force. <laughs> I like that. For football. <laughs> Now, it's becoming more and more apparent there was actually not a vote of league presidents when the conference decided to shut down the season just days after announcing a revised schedule. So does that mean that uh, he, Warren pretty much decided himself? Is, it, is that what we're understanding now, if there was no vote? From what I can gather, and, th- and this is really coming out in drip-drip fashion, which looks worse for Warren and for the Big Ten, he was kind of steering the bus. He right. was the guy who was saying, look, let's not do this because of a lot of different reasons. And you, you can understand that. Sure. But he really was looking for a reason not to have a season and to try to pull this thing off in the spring. And the hope was that the Big Ten acted first, then the other Power Fives right. would fall in behind. And that has not happened. 
When I think is interesting that the SEC, ACC, Big 12 obviously are moving forward, but you have a school like North Carolina. They're sending their kids home, yeah. and they're still going to have their student athletes yeah. on campus to practice and play. That is a sticky situation. And like I said earlier, in two weeks, three weeks, Kevin Warren might look like the sharpest right. Right. you know guy in the room. But right now, just the way this was handled and done, mm-hmm. it just it does not look good. Now, the NCAA will likely decide in mid-September whether to start the college basketball season on time or have a short-term delay due to COVID. NCAA Senior Vice President of Basketball Dan Gavitt said in a statement that mid-September would likely be the first of many decisions about the upcoming season. I don't think they start on time. I don't think so either, but would it really be all that terrible if they started after the, the first of the year and you played end of March, maybe early April. It's not March Madness, maybe, but you you get into April. What's the hurry? I think eventually what's going to happen is that the junior colleges had it right. The junior colleges went to this model about a month ago right. saying we're going to try to start basketball on January 10th. Sure. And then try to squeeze this thing in in January, February, throughout March. We'll see. Okay, now earlier in the show, you wanted me to go to Twitter <laughs> yes. and see this mm-hmm. New Jersey, the Space Jam movie. Correct, the new Space Jam, yep. Starring LeBron James. <laughs> and okay, your I've thoughts? looked at him. Uh, much like the uh, remakes of the movie <laughs> True Grit, Total Recall, and Red Dawn, Tyler, <laughs> just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. Now, I said about an hour ago that the original is a masterpiece. So I will agree with you on that. But what do you think of the jersey? It's loud. It's kind of obnoxious. I'm not the demo. <laughs> I'm not the Good demo. Point. They're, they're Good aiming point. for so, <laughs> yeah. so my opinion is irrelevant. But hopefully for LeBron James and those so disposed, uh, they enjoy the movie. You, well, you watch the movie when it comes out. You won't even give it one view. Really? I'm just you, saying. You have to ask me that. No. <laughs> Maybe if the grandkids want to watch it. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Check that out as well. Thank you very much. That is sports. Time for Midday News here on KRVN. Ellen Simmons is now joining us. And Ellen uh, just told me that uh, some disturbing news. She has never seen Space Jam, the original Space Jam. I don't Jam. think I have. I mean, I've Ellen, seen. Ellen, I've we're seen, the same age here. That was in right now wheelhouse. I honestly, growing up, I didn't watch a lot of movies. No, you were. I was okay. busy. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> but at least check it out. I it, will. It's worth at least one watch. You know, I know. W- I've seen snippets of it. And okay. Stuff like that, all right. So. All right. You know what it's about. What yeah. it is. Okay. All right. Very good. Let's get to the real news here. What do you have for us? Well, a, co- a crop duster plane hit a power line Tuesday this morning around 8:50 a.m. north of Scotts Bluff along Highway 71. Authorities say the pilot suffered serious but non-life-threatening injuries and was transported to Regional West Medical Center. According to our sister station, KNEB, Scotts Bluff County Sheriff Mark Overman says the plane hit a power line causing the line to come down and hit the front of the cab on a semi hauling a load of cattle that was traveling southbound. The semi driver and the cattle on the board were not injured. Scotts Bluff County Sheriff's Office, Nebraska Public Power District, and National Transportation Safety Board assisted at the scene. And there is some pictures on our website there, as well. Yeah. I didn't see any of the actual plane, but of the the front of the semi that right. got like hit apparently. Right, and Good. they are asking that people kind of avoid that area because there are power lines on the ground. Yeah, definitely don't go there if you're in <laughs> Western Nebraska. Yeah. 
Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts has vetoed a bill that would have prohibited prison officials from blocking the view of execution witnesses before they, the condemned inmate is declared dead, signaling that they're willing to repeat the much-criticized step in a future execution. The bill was introduced after prison officials closed the witness viewing curtain for 14 minutes during the August 2018 execution of Carrie Dean Moore, which prevented members of the media from seeing the full process. Supporters of the bill said the move prevented the public from knowing whether something went wrong with the execution. Buffalo County is using a unique approach to manage its criminal caseloads and jail population. County Attorney Sean Etherton says this Thursday... Uh, Buffalo County Court will have a warrant vacation day. Etherton says some of the large communities in the state have tried similar events that go over a matter of days. A media release from Etherton's office says those who could benefit from this opportunity may show up Thursday from 9 a.m. to noon or 1.30 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. Individuals who have misdemeanor warrants are able to come to court uh, basically, the court will withdraw the warrant because they voluntarily appeared and give them a new court date. And what this does, it allows the incon- uh, to avoid the inconvenience of um, people being arrested uh, when they don't need to. It, it, it limits our contact with law enforcement with people in these uncertain times. And then, of course, limits the amount of people that we're running through the jail at any given time because many of these people are going to get very low bonds or PR bonds anyway. Many court hearings were postponed in the spring when COVID-19 was first identified, and some have had to schedule extra hearings this summer to catch up. Etherton says the warrant vacation day does not mean a person is going to get a break. He says they're still going to be held accountable of their charges, but he says the court often does into account when a person takes responsibility for their actions and shows up for court. A man convicted in the death of a Nebraska college student whose body has never been found is appealing the verdict and his sentence of 71 years to life in prison. The Nebraska Supreme Court agreed Monday to consider 38-year-old Joshua Keitel's appeal. He was sentenced last month for second-degree murder. Tyler Thomas was 19 when she disappeared in December 2010 after the Omaha student left a party near Peru State College in southeastern Nebraska where Keitel also was a student. Prosecutors say Keitel killed Thomas and dumped her body in the Missouri River. Keitel maintains that her left that he left her alive. That's a look at your news. You can find more at KRBN.com. Thank you very much, Ellen. There will be a change in leadership at the state's largest farm organization later this year. From the Nebraska Soybean Board Studio in Lincoln, I'm Bryce Duskin reporting on the Rural Radio Network. Nebraska Farm Bureau President Steve Nelson has announced his plans to retire and not seek re-election at the end of his current term. Nelson, a farmer from Axtell, Nebraska, has served in the role of president since 2011. He joined us by Zoom following the announcement to share some of the factors that went into making his decision. Sure, well, probably it goes back to when I initially ran for president an idea that that serving nine years was kind of the right time. My predecessor, Keith Olson, served nine years, and I thought that was a pretty good example. Uh, One thing that I've also said all along is I love farming. I love to farm with my son, and uh, we enjoy working together. And so I didn't want to to, uh, miss some of the opportunities to do that. And I have young grandchildren uh, now that I want to spend more time with, and so... Uh, those factors kind of have, have been there and, and part of the decision-making all along. 
and, and so really leads me to this being the right time to do this, not just for myself, uh, but for Nebraska Farm Bureau. I want to go back for a moment, Steve, to 2011 when you decided you were going to run for the role as president of uh, the largest farm organization here in the Cornhusker State. Walk us through that decision and what you remember from those days. Sure. Well, uh, you know, I'd been on the board for uh, over 10 years at that time. And, and uh, I, you know, I'd even I'd back up a ways to when I first ran for the state board of directors. It was something that I thought would be a good thing to do something that I thought I could do, but I really didn't have a goal or an idea or an objective to become president of Nebraska Farm Bureau. But as time went by and became vice president first, and the opportunity seemed to be uh, lining up to to make it uh, work, you know, we have an expectation that the president of Nebraska Farm Bureau is a full-time farmer and rancher. Uh, and in order to do the job and be gone a lot from the farm, you have to have someone at the farm that that can take care of things while you're gone. And so that's something we talked about at home. And our son, Scott, runs the operation there, has done an outstanding job and really made it possible for me to do this. So that was a lot of the reasoning that, that went into it. And the opportunity to serve farmers and ranchers and speak uh, on behalf of farmers and ranchers, certainly a great opportunity and something that, that I've always uh, not only enjoyed but taken very seriously. As you look back on your nine years of serving as the president of this organization, what are going to be some of those memories that stand out the most? Uh, a story or two you want to share uh, that uh, are really vivid for you? Well, you know, I'm not sure if there's any one thing that, that stands out. Uh, I think in addition to the things I've already talked about, the, the opportunity to represent farmers and ranchers around the world on trade missions. I've had the opportunity to, to travel with more than one governor uh, in many places around the world and, and to uh, represent and promote the products that we raise here in Nebraska. It, it has just been really, really a great opportunity and something that I've enjoyed very much and and something that I think is very important as well. And, and so the, the highlights, well, there are many uh, certainly the, those, those trips to, uh, to promote Nebraska, to promote Nebraska products would be high on the list. Remind us how the process works. Of course, uh, first vice president of the Nebraska Farm Bureau, Mark McCart, uh, visited with him. I, I have to think he'd be interested in this role, but remind us of the election process come December, what that will look like. Sure. Well, our, uh, the president and vice president of Nebraska Farm Bureau were elected at large, as I said earlier, uh, requirement is that you be a full-time farmer and rancher, or farmer or rancher, I guess you could be both. And, and uh, certainly, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm proud of is that we have a number of people uh, within the leadership of the organization who are, would be well qualified to be president of the organization. I know Mark is one of those. And, and uh, so, so we will have an election in December. Uh, my assumption is that there'll be multiple candidates for for that spot, and and so that's that's how it works. We we don't have term limits on. I I, I could have run again, but but again the 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 timing I believe is right for for us to have new leadership at Nebraska Farm Bureau, and so so there'll be uh, be elections as we always have at our annual meeting, and uh, and so that. Uh, that's something that we'll look forward to and, and I think look forward to some, some uh, you know, changes in the future. 
Well, Steve, uh, you've always been generous with your time sharing it with uh, our radio stations here at the Nebraska Rural Radio Association. I'm sure this is not the last time we'll talk to you as you uh, have a few more months before you'll officially round out your term as president of the Nebraska Farm Bureau. But I do want to say thank you for uh, always being generous with your time and, and making time for us. Absolutely, and certainly appreciate uh, what you do at all of the, the stations around the state of Nebraska. Nebraska Farm Bureau President Steve Nelson joining us. I'm Brian Stuskit on the Rural Radio Network. With Business Report, I'm Bob Brogan. Stock indexes are drifting mostly higher on Wall Street today, and the S&P 500 is once again bouncing against its record-closing level, which has been acting as its ceiling in recent days. The S&P 500 was up two-tenths of a percent in midday trading. Earlier, it briefly rose above its record-closing high, which was set in February. It's the fourth time in the last week that's happened, and each past time the index faded back below that record level during the afternoon. Construction of new homes surged 22.6% last month as home builders continue to bounce back from the coronavirus pandemic. The Commerce Department reports new homes were started at an annual pace of nearly 1.5 million in July, highest since January and well above what economists were expecting. Housing starts have now risen three straight months after plunging in March and April as the virus outbreak paralyzed the American economy. Millions of people forced to work out of the office took on new projects at home, and Home Depot is supplying a lot of the material. At Home Depot stores open at least a year, sales surged a remarkable 25% in the U.S. during the second quarter. Overall, revenue for the Atlanta company hit just over $38 billion, far exceeding the $34.9 billion Wall Street was expecting, according to a Zacks Investment Research Survey. It easily topped last year's revenue of $30.8 billion for the three months ended August 2nd. Walmart delivered strong profits and sales that beat Wall Street expectations for its fiscal second quarter. The retailer was helped by shoppers focused on buying food and other items as they stay close to home during the pandemic. For the Rural Radio Network, I'm Bob Brogan. An interest in steam locomotives was the catalyst for gearing author Lawrence Gibbs' new book, Nebraska Sweet Beets, A History of Sugar Valley. After serving in the Vietnam War, Gibbs moved to the Panhandle in 1968. At that time, I was fascinated to see there were still some steam locomotives operating at the sugar factories at, at uh, harvest time. Uh, steam locomotives had disappeared over a decade earlier, pretty much on the East Coast where I grew up, so that was kind of unique. Uh, in the fall of 73, I went around and took pictures at, some, at the uh, four factories that were still operating then of the locomotives uh, at that time. While several books have been written about the people the sugar factories brought to the panhandle, Gibbs says the history of the factories and their growing infrastructure became his focal point. The sugar factories began in Grand Island, Norfolk, and Ames, but weather and irrigation made the panhandle of Nebraska ideal for sugar production. Nebraska got started in the beet industry in the last part of the 1890s or middle to late in 1890s. And uh, a factory was built at Grand Island. A later one was built at Norfolk and another one at Ames, Nebraska. The Grand Island factory was relatively successful and operated until 1964. 
The Norfolk and Ames factories were not successful. Both lasted about a decade, and that was the end of them. One of the main reasons they didn't survive was the high humidity in eastern Nebraska contributed to disease in the sugar beets. The western part of the state, with its irrigation projects, allowed the uh, beet raisers to control, to some extent, the amount of moisture that the beets were exposed to and therefore lessen the, uh, the problem with disease. The railroads, Gibbs says, played a big role with bringing people, materials, and more to the factories. But he says it was a challenge to find any photos of the spurs. There were a number of beet spurs in Scottsbluff and Morrill County and even into Goshen County uh, that they operated trains on to bring the, the beets into the factories. They were built before the road system was very good, so they would have problems where uh, beet wagons and trucks would get stuck in the mud and they couldn't get to the factory, so that's why they built these spurs. And I was trying to find photographs of these trains operating on these beet spurs. It's virtually impossible. Gibbs says in the book he talks about how the sugar industry was key to the growth of many communities. You know, there were a number of factories, you know, of, of the one, there was one in Gearing, one at Baird, one at Mitchell, one at Minotaur, Lyman, and uh, the Holly plant up in Torrington. There were a number of uh, other places who really wanted factories, but as far as I could find, never really pursued it too far. Holly Sugar looked at putting a factory in Minotaur, in fact, even apparently acquired an option on some land, and a group of farmers were uh, proposing to build a co-op factory there. Well, when Great Western finally resumed construction in the fall of 26, the other two projects fell by the wayside. Two things probably made this valley what it's been, in, at least in the 20th century, and that was the sugar beet industry, which could not have happened without the irrigation projects. And without the two of those, I think we'd just be a backwater here because there really wasn't anything to bring people here. The sugar beet industry was considered the golden goose. And if you got a sugar factory, you had it made. Your community was a success. Lawrence Gibbs' book, Nebraska Sweet Beets, A History of Sugar Valley, can be found at local retailers and on Amazon. With the Rural Radio Network, I'm Chabella Guzman. Clay Patton on the Rural Radio Network talking with John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniel Zag Marketing in Chicago, publisher of the newsletter this week in grain. And John, as we look here at the grain trade, definitely a turnaround Tuesday. Grain's lower for the most part. Is this a disappointment in the drop in crop condition ratings yesterday or just how well the pro farmer crop tours are starting to look right now? I think it's part of it. You know, to, to get the spec funds, the spec traders to cover more, you need one of two things to happen. One, you know, they find some problems in Iowa, which I think, you know, beyond what we believe. And I don't know what those numbers are. I don't live there. And I certainly don't have the capability to drive around and talk to everybody. So you got to gotta take people at their word. I'm hearing it's bad in the areas that were hit and the areas surrounding it, not as bad. I don't know. We'll see how they, they shake out um, as far as the total crop loss goes. You know, my fear is really there's just a lot of spot that needs to clear between now and the end of the month, between now and the, end of the fall. I mean, just to give you some transparency, the calls I get a lot were examples of a farmer who's sitting on supply, been on supply maybe even two years, and they're thinking they want to get rid of it. What are they looking at as far as reowning? Those kind of questions come to me at this time of the year because there's a kind of an end date for when folks have to make decisions. So, um, you know, if they're looking for that kind of flexibility, it's something we can do here 
but it hasn't really paid off much in the last few years. Owning in the middle of August, we tended to see sell-offs into that September 1st, middle of September time period. And I got to think if we either see crop tour not as bad or if the weather would look pretty good here in the next two weeks, I think both corn and beans could, could set back quite a bit. If not, then, you know, we're somewhat cheap and there's pretty decent demand given China bought today. And looking at that, the yuan up against its highest level since mid-March against the U.S. dollar. The dollar down another 50 ticks today. This has got to be very good for us in the global export market. Well, yeah, I think the exports will follow. At this point, it's more sentiment. And I think, you know, so much of what we follow as far as prices go are, are really, is, is, you know, confidence markets. And I think at this time, uh, the dollar is certainly being looked at as something that really is maybe shunned because they're giving money away. But I really think it comes down to the election. I think if Trump wins, the dollar gets hammered. Or, I'm sorry, if the Trump wins, I think the dollar will strengthen. I think in the near term, that'll be negative for ag. That's long term, but I think there will be some price pressure that comes from that. If Biden wins and the Democrats take both the Senate and, and the presidency, then I think the dollar can get really weak. And that's where you really want to own commodities more than the actual physical currency. So having some flexibility here is certainly uh, a good idea, but uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't involve risk as does holding on to the grain. And again, John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst, Daniel Zag Marketing. Do remember, trading futures and options involves risk of loss. may not be suitable for all investors. Learn more at danielzagmarketing.com. Thank you very much, Clay. Well, that'll wrap up today's edition of Midday. If you missed anything or want to rehear any of our interview segments, you can listen to our Midday Podcasts, which is sponsored by Devaney Motors at krvn.com or on iTunes.